Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the History of Eye Care. I'm Dr. Morgan Micheletti, and I'm honored to have you along for the special episode on Selective Laser Trabeculoplasty, or SLT. This episode was recorded live at the American Academy of Ophthalmology in the Lumabird Medical Booth. I was honored to have been joined by Dr. Gus Gazard, who is a leading authority in glaucoma research. He's the director of surgery at the Moorfields Eye Hospital and a professor at UCL. He's renowned for his work as the chief investigator of the light trial and has authored over 110 publications in the field. Joining him was Dr. Mark Latina, who's a well-known pioneer in SLT, having dedicated his life to developing this wonderful treatment for our patients with glaucoma. During this episode, we'll learn their histories and how they became involved in ophthalmology, to how they each worked individually to help further the advancement of glaucoma treatments. Well, Mark and Gus, thank you both so much for being here with me today. We're live here at the American Academy of Ophthalmology in San Francisco. Let's get started by just talking about yourself. How'd you get started in the field and how'd you decide on ophthalmology? So uh, thank you, and it's Mark Latina. And I actually was you know, interested in medicine for quite a long time. My neighbor was, a, was an anesthesiologist, so we sort of got interested in medicine from that point of view. I was a chemistry major in college, like chemistry, and was pre-med, and went to medical school. And then during medical school, because of my background in chemistry, I loved acid-based chemistry and uh, said, oh, you know, I'll become a nephrologist and did nephrology externship and went into internal medicine. And about two months internal medicine, I said, forget this. This seems to be more like a over-glorified secretarial position (laughs) and uh, decided to apply for ophthalmology. And the reason for ophthalmology I had done in medical school, I had actually done a, uh, uh, an externship at Mass Eye here at Harvard Medical School. And, you know, was very, was just very interested in the technology and the, the, the optics. It was very scientific. It was very technical. And it was actually, you know, in many ways, very mathematical as well. So I decided to apply for ophthalmology and at that time, they had a research, research program at the Mass Ioneer Infirmary. And I had always actually been a great, actually when I was a chemistry major, I worked in the lab for several years with one of the chemistry professors. So I said, oh, I'll, I'll do some uh, research before actually starting the ophthalmology residency. So they had a program for that. And I got hooked up with Leo Shylak, who was one of the world experts in actually cataract evaluation, spectral analysis of cataracts, and worked, and so we got together and and I got on a project to look at how cataracts form and their spectral changes 
and ended up working at MIT with uh, two famous scientists there in material science, George Benedict and Toyo Tanaka, and started working on how the spectral changes occur in, in cataract and worked with actually dimethyl sulfoxide and how to induce cataracts in rabbits and then looking at spe spectral changes in those cataracts called dynamic issue is called the dynamic laser spectroscopy. So I began working with lasers. Actually, I worked with the Exomer laser. Wow. Had no idea what ophthalmology was really like because I've actually only been in the lab working with rabbits and animals and doing spectra. So it was real, really, you know, no true ophthalmology experience. And I wanted to induce a cataract using an eczema laser. This was before, this was a, around, just before um, the eczema laser was being used for refractive surgery. Not really knowing, as I said, not knowing really anything about ophthalmology, I irradiated the rabbit corneas, the rabbit trying to get the um, cataract to form and, event, and basically destroyed the cornea in the process. You know, not really understanding that if we had blighted it, we could have <laughs> could have invented eczema laser, late, you know, late, you know, refractive surgery. But anyway, I got involved in lasers. So at MIT, and so my sort of you know background in chemistry and, and actually that background sort of helped me through get into you know developing SLT in the in the future. So I became a you know then I went through my residency. I worked with uh, Carmen Poyafito and Roger Steiner. We did the, uh, at that point, the YAG, the YAG laser yep. was just coming out as a, as a clinical tool. Aaron Rosa in France had, had invented or developed the use of the ND YAG laser for performing capsulotomies and then ir iridectomies. I did one of the first studies looking at the effects of, the, of a laser, of a YAG laser iridectomy on the anterior capsule of the lens, seeing what effect it had on the surface of the lens, and uh, showed that the lens actually remained, lens capsule remained intact, it may be slightly damaged, but it repaired itself, and we published a paper about that, I don't know, back in like 1983 or 84 or something to that effect. Then I became a, so, so again, I became uh, more involved with late with lasers. At that time, again, it was the the ND AG laser, and then I became a glaucoma fellow with uh, Dave Epstein. And Dave was, of course, their lab was very interested in the trabecular meshwork outflow apparatus with doc, with Dr. Grant. And you know, these are all basically probably one of some of the most fundamental, you know, some of the really pioneer ophthalmologists which I really had the, the privilege of working with. So I actually worked with some of the, in my opinion, some of the, some of the best people in the field. Oh, yeah. And uh, so it was a great, it was a phenomenal experience over the years. So he was interested in, as, as I said, in trabecular meshwork outflow. And he was actually working on ethacrinic acid as that outflow. So, yeah, so ethacrinic acid, so the basis I could tell, I can tell you the history of probably half the stuff that we're doing. 
the uh, ethacrinic acid was uh, was modified the microtubules in in in, okay. kidney, in kidneys. So it was a microtubular actually inhibitor, if I remember correctly. And he was trying to use it to affect the outflow. He did initial. So I actually worked on some of the initial experiments with him. But it was a very inflammatory. You know, it, injecting it in the eye was quite inflammatory. So there were a lot of issues with it. Dave Epstein, of course, continued to work on it and developed ultimately developed repressin, so nutarsidil. So he went in that direction. But anyway, I was in the lab, so I learned a lot about with Dr. Grant and, and him, and learned a lot about the outflow apparatus. One of the pivotal papers that I read, and actually is the fundamental basis for all that we see today in SLT, was several papers by George Alvarado. Many people actually do not know this. And uh, so this is you know, information that's been buried for 20, 25, 30 years or so. But so in 1985 or so, I think 85, 86, George Alvarado published several articles on trabecular meshwork cellularity. Yeah. Do you remember those articles? Yeah, yeah. And I looked at those articles, that's so really interesting. The, he felt his hypothesis was that you know, reduction in trabecular meshwork cellularity was a key or critical component to the pathogenesis of glaucoma. So I said, how do you prove it? Can you prove it? There's no good animal models for glaucoma. So can we, can we actually, you know, the, the data was, I think, very highly, highly convincing that it, it, it did play a major role. So I said, well, all right, I just decided to ask the question, you know, can this be done? Can we target the trabecular meshwork cell without damaging the structure? That was the question. And we still, go ahead. So were you thinking at that point, you might be able to reverse the decline in cellularity, which had been shown to be associated with the presence of glaucoma and with aging? Or was that something that was arising out of an, a seeking for an animal model or seeking for a, an in vivo model? Exactly. So we were actually looking to develop an animal model for right. glaucoma. Right. In other words, could we target the cells and create, again, a, a model similar to what is happening in the human, in the human? And you know, fundamentally, create an animal model. So, how do you target the how do you how do you target the cell? How do you do it? Well, I was a chemistry major, so I said, okay, well, that's not too hard, I don't think, because trabecular meshwork cells are phagocytic, and they eat things. And they like to eat things. Yeah. And I said, and but we we have to be selective, so we have to be able to only target the trabecular meshwork area without targeting everything else. Otherwise, we wouldn't know what's going on. So I said, okay, let, if they eat things, they'll eat. We knew that they sort of ate microspheres, actually. So we could use microspheres. And then they have nanospheres and all this other stuff. But at the time, we didn't have, I don't think we had nanoparticles at the time. But I said, we can connect, we can actually 
couple the photosensitizers to microspheres and we can feed the trabecular metric cells and then we can illuminate them with, at the wa appropriate wavelength and activate the photosensitizer and target the cell. And when target the cell, you're meaning eliminate the cell? Either eliminate it or damage it. Yeah. You know, there are various levels of yeah. quote unquote killing. It's not yeah. total elimination, but partial elimination, etc. So actually, the, I actually applied for a, it's called, it was a, it's called a K1, NEI K1. Yeah. Clinician Research NEI funded grant. So I got I got that grant and I actually the work actually took place in the Department of Dermatology. So SLT was not invented in, in, in ophthalmology. Believe it or not, SLT was invented in the Department of Dermatology at the Mass General Hospital. And um, And what point in that did you realized that you weren't knocking out these trabecular meshwork cells and creating a glaucoma model, but in fact you were having a positive impact on the outflow. Right, so the story has to continue. So we we developed, so the reason we went to the MGH was because they were experts in photosensitizers for the skin. So I said, these guys know what they're doing. They know how to work with photosensitizers and they work with lasers. So I went to the, it was called the Wellman Lab of Photomedicine at the MGH under John Parrish. And Dr. Parrish said, okay, you know, we'll help you out and we'll look into this. And I had, you know, developed, we wrote the NEI grant, so we had funding. And we started looking at photosensitizers. The first photosensitizer I looked at was hematoporphyrin. It was, it was available, it was FDA approved. Great, this is perfect. I found that it was not a very efficient photosensitizer. And I actually did work also in the retina. So I was looking at it, I did work on corneal vascularization, I did work in the retina, and we did work in trabecular meshwork cells. As a side, kick, side, Joan Miller was actually, began working in the same area. I had determined that hematoporphyrin would not be that efficient and therefore the vessels would recanalize. And so the, basically threw it to the side. Joan continued to work on it and developed PDT. <laughs> so you have to give her Joan Miller credit because she persisted in using hematoporphyrin. I worked on a different uh, hematoporphyrin, a photosensitizer. I actually worked with the people at MIT and actually Polaroid. Polaroid had, you know, Edwin Land, I'm giving you history that probably nobody's ever heard. Edwin Land had in his own private institute at, at, in Cambridge, right across the river from the Mass Ironier. And I worked with those guys over there and they had photosensitizers for everything because that's what, that's what lands, that's how the land camera worked, basically. Polaroid cameras, remember Polaroid cameras? Yeah. They worked on photosensitizers. That was a fundamental basis for actually all of the, the, the developing of, of, of your picture. So anyway, we went over there, we, we developed, a, we got a photosensitizer called Chlorine E6, which was a highly efficient photosensitizer, tuned to the, with a peak uh, absorption around, I think 580 microns, uh, 580 nanometers. And we were able to, 
efficiently couple it to the surface of the microsphere. We fed the microspheres. We developed a, a in vivo system, uh, in vitro, sorry, in vitro trabecular menstruate cell culture system. And we're able to feed the microspheres to the, to the, to the TM cells, and we could irradiate it with a 580 micron wavelength light, and we were able to target the cells kill, you know, in, in cell culture, actually kill, kill them. It was extremely efficient. Very good. No problem, right? Okay. No problem, we thought. I had a whole colony of monkeys. And I said, okay, we got to do it in, I got owl monkeys, which have either, the owl monkey eye is the closest monkey eye to humans. I mean, I tried cats. I, unfortunately, I killed a lot of cats because I was not good at the anesthesia on the cats. So I said, <laughs> and the cats did not have a very good network at all. I, we used rabbits. It was, couldn't use really rabbits. It's hard to get, they have a very different outflow apparatus. But the owl monkey actually has a very similar trabecular meshwork, the closest one to the to the human. So we actually, in those days, we were able to have owl, and, you know, we were able to actually have owl monkeys and have a colony of them and utilize them and so on, so on and so forth. And they weren't exorbitantly expensive. So we started injecting the owl monkeys and doing the work in the owl monkeys. We found that the uptake was poor, actually, of the photo of the microspheres in the in the in the in the living in the in vivo system, and we did get uptake, and we tried targeting the the monkeys, but it basically did was not did not look like it was going to be productive. So, at that point, we had to sort of switch gears, and at the same time, the other question that was I was asking was, was it really necessary to photocoagulate the trabecular meshwork in order to get IOP lowering based on the work of the argon laser trabeculoplasty? So at that time, uh, Samples and his co-workers were actually working at Van Buskirk and were working on the biological response to argon laser trabeculoplasty. So that was also happening in, at that time. So I was saying, well, we have a technology potentially that can selectively target the trabecular meshwork cells. Do we need to actually coagulate the meshwork in order to get a, we, what we want is a biological response. We don't do, we don't want, you know, again, do we need to physically change the outflow structure by photocoagulating it? And causing supposedly scarring and a, you know strain on the meshwork, or can we do it without targeting the without causing a structural damage to the meshwork? So as I was saying, so those two actually coalesced. The, the the questions came together at the same time. One, the TM, uh, the photosensitizer wasn't working well, so I had to make a decision. Either we modify the whole approach improve the photosensitizer, improve the coupling, improve the uptake of the photo of the microsphere, or we do something else. And I said, well, I need another, I need another chromophore. I need another chromophore, something that I, that's easily, readily available and I don't have to make and, you know, we can get in the measure. What's the, what's the best chromophore we got in the eye? 
melanin. Melanin is the best chromophore. You know, light, light shines on marble head, right? And, and I said, we'll just target the melanin. So, and plus, if we don't have enough melanin, we can do an iridotomy. We can get more melanin. <laughs> we don't even have to enter the eye, right? Yeah. So I said, okay, so let's use melanin. So we started a whole series of experiments. What's the best way to target the cell with melanin in it? And we did cell culture experiments. We fed the we fed the uh, trabecular meshwork cells melanin, so we had melanin, you know, pure melanin, and they would the, the cells would phagocytose them. And then what we decided, well, how do we know if it's selective? So we said, we'll mix the non the non pigmented meshwork cells with the pigmented meshwork cells, plate it out, and we'll laser it. And that was our first paper on selective targeting of trabecular meshwork cells in vitro. And we showed that we used various lasers and various wavelengths and various pulse durations and had a whole slew of energies. And we figured out that the NDAG laser, three nanosecond short pulse laser was the most efficient, most effective way to selectively target the trabecular meshwork cell without causing any zero thermal damage to the surrounding tissues. So that was the fundamental. So we figured out now how we could selectively target it in vivo with a laser system. It was, a you know, so it was 532 nanometers. We, re we realized it was the most efficient a, a frequency doubled YAG. Not, YAG 1064 actually was not, was very le significantly less efficient. So, we started doing, at this point, we started doing in vitro experiments with, mon with monkeys now, in vivo experiments with monkeys, and we would do an, an iridotomy or either or inject the monkey with some melanin to melanize the meshwork if it wasn't melanized. Yeah. So you're still trying to selectively target these trabecular meshworks? Correct. Are you still thinking about this is going to be creating a model for glaucoma, or have you realized at this stage that actually it's having the reverse effect and it's not creating a new model, but actually it might be a treatment? So we're... When did, when did that when did that? So that occur? Okay, so that okay. came about when... So we did... It was subsequent. So it was subsequent, actually. We were still thinking about targeting the meshwork, and we, we did it, and we actually did a lot of histology, and I said, okay... We're ready to see if this thing, what it actually does. So we melanized the meshwork. We blasted the bejeebus out of it. <laughs> and we couldn't get glaucoma. And I, and I looked and I did the histology and we looked at it and lo and behold, the meshwork, the, the, um, the fibrous beams, the trabecular beams were intact. The structure looked beautiful. There was a reduction in, in some reduction in trabecular meshwork cellularity, but again, no, no glaucoma. But it also looked extremely safe. And I said, this looks re really, really good as far as the overall structure. Coming back to the original, my question: Do we need to do we need to photocoagulate? I said, well. Maybe we can use the technology to treat glaucoma. 
because subsequent experiments showed that actually, at least in the monkey, the TM cells repopulated. So there was a there was a re, 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 rejuvenation of the meshwork. Well, that happened subsequent. Subsequent, right? So, but but some of that some of the rejuvenation and some of the stimulation of trabecular meshwork cell division was being done with ALT previously as well. Wasn't right. There? Some radionucleotide labeling, looking at right. migration of cells, cells, and repopulation right, exactly. cells. So we did actually some, we actually did some, which I never published, I still have the data. We looked at some, you know, D DNA, um, upregulation up of DNA in the trabecular measure. And it was it was being upregulated. Yeah. And we could see that, the, that, that there was mitosis occurring and there was, there were, there were repopulation of the measure cells. So anyway, it was around, so we said basically one, the big steps were one: we could use mel, we could, we could use tea, we could use melanin. Two: we could do it now, non-invasively. And three: uh, basically came to the question: can we use it to treat glaucoma? We had really no, we really had no idea. We had absolutely no idea if it was going to make, make, you know, improve the outflow. Or I mean, the, all the studies suggested it improved outflow. I, we, I think we did some tonography studies on the monkeys, but. It was hard to do those studies, and the data was a little was really equivocal. But what we did, what I did know, was it did not cause glaucoma. No matter how much I treated them, it did not cause glaucoma. So I said, well, maybe we can use it. I said, well, there weren't that many people really, to be honest with you, interested in in a treatment in a uh, animal model. To be honest with you, they, they were yeah. not. But they were damn interested in figuring out if we could treat it. So I said, okay, we, we've got all the technology. And I said, I don't, again, I, I don't think we need to target, I don't think we need to coagulate the measure. I can create a biological response in the meshwork just by targeting the TM cells. Some of them will die, some of them will not, but we'll get a, bio, we'll get a biological response some way. So I went to Coherent Laser and said, I've got this approach. I don't actually, all the data, I can selectively target the cells. I've got the histology to show it. I've got electron microscopy. We're actually targeting the melanin cell within the grant, within the TM, within, we're targeting the melanin granule within the cell. Yeah. We're not actually targeting the cell. We're actually targeting the meshwork, the, the melanin granule. And we're causing no thermal damage. Will you build me a, I need, but I need, we need to test it and I need a clinical laser to do it. Will you do it? So I had actually, before going to that, patented the approach. So in other words, in other words, how do you selectively target a TM cell? Actually, it was selectively targeting all ocular pigmented cells. So the patent covered actually every cell in the eye. <laughs> and we targeted, we figured out, you know, we could we could target RPE. Yeah. I could target RPE, retinal pigment epithelium. I could target ocular iris pigment. I could target tactically melanomas within the within the within the eye. So we filed the patent and then we actually and then we went to coherent. It said we have a we have a patent pending and will you build us a laser? So they built a laser. They, they initially did not want 
to build a frequency doubled yeah. Because that required they had a, they had a yeah. They had a 1064 yeah. Why don't you use a 1064 yeah? If that's what it is. You know, I said, well, it's the, the efficiency is 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 like 10 or 50 times less than with a 532. But no, try it. So, well, okay, but I said, I, th I think you should st start working on building the 532. <laughs> and uh, so we did actually a year with the 1064 YAG, and it, it basically would require too much energy. So at that stage, was it the, the shift in the frequency doubling that they found difficult, or was it the nanopulse? No, they were, we were able to build an, the nanopulse was, was easy. Yeah. They had to frequency double it. And that's what they didn't want to do. They didn't want to do it because that's a brand new, that's a whole new clinical laser. Yeah. So a so, lot more regulatory. Right. Hurdles. Right. So, I mean, there, there was 532 lasers yeah. out, but they to right. build a new clinical laser required, you know, a little bit more. But also it had to be a frequency doubled YAG in order to get the nanopulse. You couldn't exactly. simply take another green argon. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because any, if you use anything, so we actually figured out that, you know, we figured out the pulse duration. So anything beyond really one microsecond was no longer selective. So there's a lot of lasers out there, such as the Iridex, the Pascal, all these other lasers that are saying that they're quote unselective, they're not. Either anything beyond a one microsecond pulse duration is actually goes into the coagulator zone. So because it's beyond the it's beyond the thermal relaxation time. Exactly. I was going to say, looking back at all of right. this data and all of the choices, the critical step seemed to be that choice of whatever, however long duration in terms right. of nanoseconds is. It was in the end three nanoseconds. Right. But it was the three nanosecond choice because of the thermal relaxation time. Right. Which exactly. I think pretty much everyone, most people using SLT have no idea what a thermal relaxation time exactly. is. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. They have no idea what we're They will now, though. They will now. He's about to explain that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So we didn't get to, but you're right. Exactly right. That so the thermal, that was the critical step. So the thermal relaxation time has to be less than the, has to be shorter than the, th whatever object you're targeting. If it's greater than the thermal relaxation time, then you get heat dissipation to the surrounding tissue and you get quote unquote coagulative damage. So that's why the, that's why the three nanosecond pulse was the most efficient. And 532 has the highest absorption for melon. Well, I mean, melon has a broad it has a broad absorption spectrum, but but it's also a critically, seemingly slightly geeky aspect of SLT delivery, right. which is totally missed by the majority of people who are looking at also ran lasers or similar, right? Superficially similar laser exposure and irradiation of the trabecular meshwork, which is that unless you get a very short duration, you've got thermal heating. And if you have thermal heating, you may well get a pressure lowering as you do with ALT. Right. But you probably lose some of the cell stimulation effects. Exactly. And almost certainly, but nobody's cool. really tested it, lose some of the repeatability effects that right. SLT has. Right. Yeah. You're coagulating the mesh work. Yeah, you're cooking, you're cooking you're, you're it cooking. instead of tickling it. Yeah, exactly. Now, you know, I mean, we've done, we did actually cell culture studies looking at argon and, you know, various increasing the pulse duration. When you get into a thermal mode, you have to actually, you have to reach a threshold energy in order for there to be any effect. It's almost like an on-off effect. That's why, that's why argon laser does not work well at all 
in non-pigmented TMs, lightly pigmented TMs. You're getting a cent, you can pump up the power to 10 watts, technically. Uh, well, that's not so. Maybe not, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you can pump up the power to a high level. If there's no pigment in the mesh room, really none, or very little, you will get nothing. It's basically transparent. As you add more pigment to the cell, and we actually did these studies as well, looking at the degree of pigmentation of the measure, as you increase the pigmentation for argon laser, it becomes, you, re, you reach your threshold at a slightly lower level, but you basically are in the range of, you know, 500 to whatever, 700 milliwatts or whatever to get an effect. Now, with SLT, we looked at how many pigment, how many melanin granules do you need to target the cell? And it's around, I mean, by my estimate with by electron microscopy was around five. Well, you can't see five melanin granules. I so that would you. make a lot of sense because although we have to increase the power to get a visible response in very unpigmented trabecular mesh work, such that visible response with bubble formation. Right. Nonetheless, you still see a physiological response with pressure reduction. And we know right. that there must be some absorption there. We know right. that there must be some yeah, tissue exactly. in there. Exactly. And that may also speak to some of the risks that we have with higher pressure, even nanosecond SLT, if you keep the power up high in very heavily pigmented angles. Do you think that there's enough power delivery at that point to start causing coagulative effects? Right. Very high power SLT in very heavily pigmented PDS, pigment dispersion syndrome angles. Very bad. It can be a disaster. And right. you could end up, and do you think there's enough energy delivery with that to actually cause coagulative damage? No. no. There will never be coagulative damage. So it's so, never. So the danger from that and the damage from that the is damage, not The damage is from the melanin granule being blown apart. Yeah. Okay. So what you're doing is, and so when we, so we're getting a little bit farther on the deal, but when we finally developed SLT, Mike, the first thing I said, this is going to be the best thing for pigmentary glaucoma <laughs> because man, we got tons of pigment in there. The good news is there's tons of pigment. The bad news is there's tons of pigment yeah, yeah. because the system in pigmentary, you have to understand the path, pathophysiology of pigmentary glaucoma, that what happens to pigment, the pigment is actually toxic. It's actually toxic yeah, yeah. to the trabecular mesh It's a phagocytosing the melanin and right, dying. And dying, but yeah, and it's get, the, the beams get fundamentally denuded and they actually fuse. Yeah, which so, is why you can get a depigmented late onset right, pigment dispersion high right. with high pressures and no pigment because right. the damage has happened. Exactly. So there's both intracellular and tons of extracellular pigment. The laser, of course, doesn't know where it is. It doesn't care where it is. It's just targeting the, the, the melanin and anything that's pigmented, and therefore you get a basically a overload of the outflow. In other words, it's just filled with too much junk, and you get a you get a pressure spike, requiring in some cases trabecular. So that's why when we do pigmentary, we recommend no bubble, very low energies, because the laser is so efficient. It is so efficient. You really even at again 0.5 millijoules you're yeah. you're targeting a lot of these cells so you got to go down 
below 0.5 millijoules in pigmentary glaucoma. So, so again, my thinking was, you know, it's just the best, and it ends up not being a great, not being a great idea. But you know, we so we were at the point that anyway, we're going back to coherent, coherent built us a laser, and we tried it. We, we were doing 1064. It was we were doing histology. It was causing fractures of the beams because we were using much higher energies in order to get targeting at 1064 because because of the uh, lack of absorption. So we were getting we were getting poor targeting, poor cellular uptake of the of the uh, 1064 and fractures of the of the beam. So we were actually actually were destroying the part of the mesh room. Yeah. I said, and we you know we did monkeys and I had this thought, I said, it's not gonna work. I told you this from day one, it wasn't gonna work and it's not gonna work, so here's the, here's the proof. So, still didn't know that it was gonna lower the pressure, but I knew it was gonna damage the mesh room. We didn't know the pressure lowering effect. So, it's okay, we'll, we'll build you a 532. Okay, so they built, finally they built me a 532, yeah. And we were able to demonstrate it's 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 uh, selectivity in the in the met, in the monkey, and again I treated him multiple times. Could not induce any glaucoma, so it looked like it's safe. I said, let's okay, we got to try a human. We don't know. We still didn't know. Let's shift gears because I think we can we can kind of bring this all together as you guys kind of start crossing paths yeah, and, and great doing all the amazing questions. things that you're doing now too. Yes, yes the critical so, questions yeah. at the critical time. Well, and this is this is the this is the best part about having two experts is you guys can formulate much better questions than I can of each other. Right, so right, that's right. thank you for that back and forth right. there too. Gus, looking at your history and your kind of evolution in the field, how did you get involved in medicine and decide ophthalmology, glaucoma, etc.? Well, okay, so going right back to the beginning, I always loved science. I always loved biology. That and next logical step from that was to get interested in medicine because that felt like biology that mattered, that had an impact. Uh, ended up at medical school in Cambridge in the 80s, did an undergraduate degree and then as part of my third year where you can choose what you want to do and some of my friends are going off and doing art history and English, I did a zoology part two and within that uh, there was a module which was sort of special senses and comparative evolutionary and comparative biology analysis of all the five senses but particularly the thing that was really exciting was the, was the vision and then also learning about the human visual ocular dominance column cat work really excited me about the kind of cortical impacts of vision and all of that side of things so began even at that stage before i'd even seen a patient to suck me into ophthalmology because of the science. And then I go off to clinical school in Cambridge, see, see some patients, realize that the surgery is kind of cool. So, you know, as I, I used to tie flies as a kid and uh, my wife calls it itty bitty surgery, but it's like, it's the <laughs> precision and the, the precision of the, of the surgery and the ability to see the pathology. And then every surgeon's love of immediate gratification. You know, you get a quick result. You get a you get an early win. You don't have to wait for 20 years to see whether your antihypertensive drug saves someone's life or not. You, you, you get your happy patient. So there were lots of things that drew me into ophthalmology and kept me there. And then 
I, I I didn't have a deviation into nephrology, but I, <laughs> I had a I had a I had a I had a sort of a diversion into 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 retina at one point. I thought I was going to do retina, and there were a lot of exciting developments there. I didn't have enough insight and, and foresight to see the whole anti-VEGF thing coming, and was looking at PDT and various other things. But sometime around that, decided I need to do something different. I didn't want to wake up. 50 working in a successful practice in somewhere in rural England and not having traveled and so the opportunity came to run a randomized controlled trial of surgery in Singapore went out to Singapore for Pancor ran a trial of trabeculectomy surgery looking at antimetabolites versus versus placebo and then while I was there met Dave Friedman who's now a professor at Harvard got interested in angle closure with him set up a an angle closure randomized controlled trial because there were guys there doing some what seemed like crazy things very early lens extraction for yeah. acute angle closure and because they could yeah and i kind of got frustrated by the oh we're going to do it because we can rather than because we should yeah they were doing it because they could not because they should so i started getting interested in randomized controlled trials because of that sort of question let's protect these patients from harm or get everyone to do what they should be doing if it works really well. Either it works and everyone should be doing this, or it should be dangerous and nobody should be doing yes, this. Right. And and yeah, let's face it, ophthalmology and medicine as a whole, but ophthalmology is still the devil by the let's have a go. There are um, reason, many reasons for doing things. So I, I got interested in randomized controlled trials through that, came back, finished my training, ended up at Moorfields, had a fateful corridor conversation with Professor Keith Barton, who at the time I think was uh, director of the glaucoma service, who said, um, some guys will give us a free laser if we can generate some data. <laughs> so why don't you just do a case series and we can get hold of the laser? And, yeah. So maybe we should look at whether we're doing this at all. Now at that stage in the UK, no one was doing ALT. Oh, really? Because you had to fight with the retinal guys to get onto the laser. Uh it was much easier to write a script. There was no one taking you out for a nice lunch if you did do the ALT, but there was if you wrote the script. And you can't be too cynical about surgeons' motivations, of but course. mainly because it was easy. Right. And a lot of people did not know how to do SL, do ALT. So people did not, in the UK, were not properly trained in ALT. They were generalists. Right. Um, I was taught to do ALT by somebody lobbing across the clinic room, my boss, throwing me a guinea escape saying catch the lasers down the corridor that was it <laughs> so I had to quickly hurriedly run to the library find the textbook find out what I should have been doing and then do the laser and hope that it was okay yeah. funnily enough we didn't get great results yeah and that was with ALT because yeah. there were no SLT lasers most right. of the hospital either worked on because right. nobody's no, so I then look at some of the literature and it works really well, or at least the literature says it does. So there, so was, the, there was the glaucoma laser trial yeah. in America, yeah. which we should talk about. So, <clears throat> which was in the, uh, so I was a, I think I was a fellow in 86. And I was actually a, uh, was actually, <clears throat> was an investigator or co-investigator or whatever it is for the GLT study, which he's bringing up. Use, well, using which laser? Argonne. Exactly. So it was the so it was actually the first study of its I think the first major clinical trial looking at laser yeah. versus medicines. Yeah. Hugh Beckman, I think, was the 
I think it was yeah. I think it was Hugh Beckman that came up with the study design. Again, looking at laser versus and the, at the time the medicines we had were timolol and terrible epinephrine and pilocarpine. And the study showed without a doubt that that laser was actually superior to medications. So that was the first large scale yeah. clinical trial. Yeah, that was again using the argon laser. And then there was the, the Aegis trial, which everybody thinks was about visual field preservation and pressure. It was nothing to do with that. It was actually about the order in which one should do either ALT or trabeculectomy right. and showed that actually it was one order was better if you right. if you did it that way around in black African patients. The other was right. made no difference in, in European derived populations. But it, so I came into this, right. this is now in the 2000s. Yeah. I came into this, and SLTs around, SLTs exist, there are SLTs being done, but largely no ALT and no SLT being done in the environment that I'm in. Yeah. That is in Singapore with glaucoma specialists. This is in the Moorfields glaucoma subspecialist um, service. I'm there as a fellow and then a and then a young consultant. And so I said, well, if we're gonna if we're gonna do this, why don't we try and do this properly? Let's let why don't we try and answer this question? And with a lot of encouragement from Richard Wormold, who was leading the Cochrane um, collaboration Eisenvision Group. I think he had led on the Cochrane review of laser trabeculoplasty, showing that it was hopeful that we needed more evidence. And so using that and some encouragement with peers we decided to do a trial and then what rapidly grew out of that decision was the realization that any study we were going to do was going to have to be a lot bigger and a lot bolder and a lot more ambitious than we had initially thought. And it grew and it grew. And when we chose what our primary outcome measures were going to be and what the funder was determining, there are lots of historical complexities around some of those decisions, which are probably less interesting, but led to the light trial being a 718 patient trial, which nobody thought would get funded and nobody thought we'd be able to recruit to. And I sort of realized somewhere along the way that that was in the development of that, that this was, whether it worked or not, was going to be a, was going to be a big chance. I needed a thing. David Freeman said to me back in Paris at European Glaucoma Society, Gus, you need a thing. You haven't got a thing. <laughs> yeah. Paul Foster's got the angle closure thing wrapped up. Right. You're doing angle closure. You need another thing. Right, yeah. <laughs> so what was your question? But your question for the light trial was what, specifically? So my question, the question that sparked it all off was, we can do SLT, but should we? That was it. That was as simple as And then right. we refined it. We refined it to, okay, let's. There, there are trials out there that show that it works, and right. it hasn't changed practice. Right. Let's... So let's do it in newly diagnosed patients because they have no expectations of treatment. They've got no previous drug exposure. Right. Now, I didn't expect it to do so much better than it does, so as well as it did. Yeah. We didn't expect it to do so much better than drops in the ways in which it has done. In fact, it exceeded our expectations. We thought that we might get a difference in quality of life because some patients hated drops and some right. patients didn't mind having laser. Right. And that was kind of where we went. We thought we would get an equivocal result where somebody said, Yes, you can use laser as a first-line treatment. Now let's think about what we should do. Yeah. The question was simple as that. It was just, you know, we know we can, we know it can lower pressure, but should we do it? Right. And that was it. Right. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's interesting how you, what we think the study shows, but actually what the real the real questions are. Yeah. 
how you come up with the real questions. And also it frustrated me that there was, I had done a lot of, not, not as preparation for the study, but I'd done a lot of work on uh, various treatments in angle closure. We'd looked at lens extraction and angle closure. We'd looked at some of the other studies, non-randomized trials, but some of the other studies, and I was lecturing around the place on early lens extraction for angle closure, and it, it wasn't really shifting the dial on behaviors. I was looked in some detail about non-compliance concordance and some of the really quite shocking details about how few patients actually take the medications that we ask them to take. And we kind of all sort of pay lip service in the lectures. You actually go back and look at the data and it's horrific. I mean, it's shocking how, how little of what we prescribe is taken. And I'd also watch the impact of, you know, big pharma on prescribing behaviours and some of the data around that. So I was very much coming from the background of, well, we can do laser, but we're not doing it. Why are we not doing it? Should we be doing it? And it was a very, very pragmatic desire to say, okay, let's try and answer that. Either we, either it doesn't work well enough and we should just ditch it, right. or everyone should be out there saying, let's get a laser done. So now, so it, it, its impact on treatment, the treatment paradigm in in England, in Great Britain. How, so, how you know, because you were saying that the... the Physicians were not doing anything. Now, what's what, what's the, what, what, where are where are where are you? So, what's really what, I mean, what's really interesting in terms of the numbers of the increase in the numbers of SLT laser, simply by getting the funding for the trial, setting up the trial, speaking about it, people knowing that it's been funded and that we're putting attention on, made them realise that SLT was an option, so they started doing more. So, laser in, laser use was rapidly increasing before we ever published any results and then has continued to do so with a blip for COVID. Because it was also framed as a cost-effectiveness study and it's a very pragmatic trial as you know that really wanted to mirror how we behave in clinics with some certain controls so that people to remove bias but patients were aware of what treatment they had, physicians were aware of what treatment they were giving but the mainly that patients knew whether or not they'd had laser. We wanted it to mirror the real world result of what they'd be doing out there in the clinic. Um, but we also needed to have a cost-effectiveness limb to that study, partly to get funding, but also credit from the funding agency to answer the question fully about whether we should be doing it. And because it was more cost-effective, for a number of reasons, the National Institute of Clinical Care Excellence, NICE, which is the body that looks at available treatments within the UK and say, should we do them or not, mandated after the publication of the, of the paper in The Lancet in 2019, about a year, two years later, NICE mandated that everybody should be offered laser. Now, not everybody is yet being right. offered laser because right. there's inertia and the right. people are slow right. to act and there are multiple barriers. But week in, week out, the number of lasers being done is going up. And I think we will, we will rapidly be at the stage where the vast bulk of newly diagnosed open angle patients receiving pressure lowering treatment will be at least offered laser in the first step within a year or two. So that's exciting. Yeah, and the European Glaucoma Society guidelines have changed and the American Academy of Ophthalmology preferred practice patterns have bumped it up to a, a, a first line treatment right. if you wish. And so that was exciting. So that so that you know that made it that made an impact. It was it was a very different Right. experience of research and academia because it was very a pragmatic starting at the patient and working, working from there 
where you were starting in the lab with cells and right. the idea of a real science. From bench from bench top so, from bench top to bedside. Yeah. Right. right? Exactly. From bench right. to bedside. Right. But that took a lot of time. Like a, uh, a lot of energy. Over well, ten years to develop really roughly ten years. Yep. To go from initial photo targeting to FDA approval it was ten, about 10 and years. And FDA approval was which year? Two th 2001. 2001. So and the light trial published 2019. And then another 17 years, well, 16 to 7, you started the trial when? Maybe two? Uh, uh, 20, uh, well, we started looking for funding in 2010. Oh, wow. We had a funding round uh, where they invited us to reapply. And so that was another year, and then there was another six-month setup. So we started recruitment in 2012, finished recruitment in 2018, published 2019. Right. So, but basically another 17 years, really 15 yeah. to 17 years, to get to the sort of definitive study. And we there have been a number of studies. We did a we did a we did a, a SLT versus Med study. It was a year trial. By, but there was tons of studies, but none of them were as quote definitive and you know large scale, which you know to the effect that you know, this trial, which effectively has, as you said, has changed our thinking. My, one question I have: Do you have any recommendations for the U.S. for the United States? Because despite the study, we still have only. Uh, 25% or something, people doing SLT as primary care? We still have American a very... Glaucoma Society was polled last year and they came up with 65 to 70% of people at the AGS, AGS were right. using it as primary treatment. But, but then most people are treating glaucoma and not at the AGS. Right. But exactly. I, think, I think we're going to start seeing this, and we're getting more prospective now, but I think we are going to start seeing this paradigm shift prompted partly, in, you know, for sure by the light trials. Right. To where we're shifting from glaucoma being a medical a medical management disease early on, to right. where it's going to start being yeah. more surgical and procedural based. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's very I think it's very exciting what some of the consequences of early laser as primary right. treatment right. are that you can get such good long term pressure lowering and visual field preservation. Well, yeah, can you talk to that because that I think is probably one of the most important aspects of the, one one of the important aspects of the trial. So I think there's two components to that. One, yeah. one is that one is if you look back at the data of, of cell division and cell stimulation from your original work and others, and if you then look at where the stem cell niches seem to reside around Shawbay's line, right. and the fact that there are human stem cells sitting in the trabecular metric, which are probably being stimulated by the SLT right. that maybe were with ALT, maybe weren't, but certainly are with SLT that we are genuinely repopulating trabecular metric and almost rejuvenating the, the TM right. to a state that may well be able to head off a lot of that long-term damage. Right. So, so that, that's, the, that's one side of it. I think we're only beginning to see how long that effect can be for a large population of patients. I mean, remember 70% of the population within, the, sorry, 70% of the sample within the light trial were controlled with no medications at six years. Doesn't yeah. mean it's worn off by six years. It means they're still going to six years and beyond. Right. So there are patients controlled. I mean, I remember Anders Heil saying, patting me on the shoulder and said, Gus, you know, we've been doing we've been doing trabeculoplasty for a very long time. 
my boy. <laughs> I did EMGT. We did we we did we did trabecular plasty, and I had patients with PXF and pressures of thirty who had one laser were controlled the day they died twenty years later. My comment to that was, well, why didn't you tell more people? <laughs> he, 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 he frowned slightly in his sort of rather right, doer, right. sort of Scandinavian way, but nonetheless <laughs> gave a smile. So there's, I think there's that side of things. I think you can head people off. You, with that single treatment, right. you, can, you can get them into a different place where they end up in a different steady state. Yeah. And something you said earlier is sort of exciting me about that, the fact that you know, in the repopulation or the rejuvenation, I hesitate to use that because I don't want it to be a marketing tool, but at the same time, I think it probably is what we are doing. And then the secondary thing that I think you're referring to, which is the lay, uh, the which is the visual field assessment within the light trials. So we had just to summarise a median follow-up, forty-eight months at the time we did the analysis because we had access to a statistician at that point uh, who was able to do the complex analysis required, compared the rates of visual field progression in the group that were treated with drops and the group that were treated with laser and then drops if necessary. And then remember that a, about a third of that laser group ended up on drops. But what we saw was that there were fewer fast or moderate visual field progressors deteriorating in the light in the laser group. So fewer patients with visual field loss and less visual field loss in the laser group than there was in the drops group, even though they were treated to a preset, eye-specific right. target pressure based on the severity and their starting exactly. pressure. And successfully treated down to these pressures in a randomized fashion across the trial, right. so right. that the average pressure of the two groups was the same. Right. They were successfully treated at target pressure. The number of visits where they were at that target was essentially the same, over 94%. Okay, good. Wow. So despite having the same pressures right. and despite being at these preset targets which could be adjusted downward if the patient got worse, the laser group still did better. Right. So what's going on there? And the optimist says that it's because it's a flattening of a diurnal curve, that it's acting throughout the day, that medical treatment creates more of a diurnal pressure fluctuation. And that's what I've called excuse, could have seen the pessimist view, which which was what I thought when it came from the coming coming from a, a, a looking in detail about non-compliance and drop use and concordance, was that patients simply didn't take their drugs. They have had laser, whether they like it or not, whether they remember or not, but they don't take their drugs. And so I think I think taking laser, I think taking the patient component, patient compliance step away was able to generate much better pressure lowering throughout the years and months of the trial. And that preserved the visual field. And then data supporting that, are that we've done similar, in a mixed trial, we've done similar visual field analysis where there were much fewer patients on medication. So the control arm had around 60% of patients taking medications. The, uh, the treatment arm had fewer than that. But the comparison of those two arms show better visual field preservation in the group that had fewer medications. I don't think there's enough of an effect from the concordance compliance to explain it all, so I think probably Kulov and I are both right. right. I think that probably is a, a flattening right. of the curve, and I think that probably is a component of pressure, uh, pressure fluctuations due right. to non-compliance. Yeah.
And there was a reduction of the number of trabeculectomies, correct? And absolutely, yeah, absolutely. In now, the, in the first three years, there's a reduction of trabeculectomies. That probably partly a reflection of the fact that there were fewer steps before you got to trabeculectomy in the drops arm than there were in the laser arm because you had two lasers and then drops, or you had drops and then trabeculectomy. Okay, right. However, the Kaplan-Meier curve that had already diverged in three years continues to diverge in the three-year follow-up, and in the extension of the trial, we let everyone have laser if they needed it. So even though patients were getting laser after their medication in the three-year extension, a lot more of those patients still needed trabeculectomy. So that's really exciting because that speaks to that rejuvenation, activation right. of cells, right, right. and if you catch them early, being able to do so better than if you catch them late, even three, just three years later. So now we're doing the COAST trial. Yes. Which is basically, the hypothesis basically maybe maybe related to the re rejuvenation. In other words, do low power SLT on a sort of a yearly basis versus standard SLT on a as needed basis to see if is the suggestion is that based on um, what his name is Tony Rellini? No, not Rellini, but the uh, op Italian ophthalmologist. Oh, I can't remember. I'm missing. But anyway, there was a study done in Italy that he looked at low power SLT repeated. It was really based on that that showed that those patients actually did did better than potentially doing standard SLT. In repeating as needed. I don't. I can't remember all the details, but I think that was part of the idea. But so the, yes, the he idea. had a historical control. So where he did a group of patients when he retreated when the pressure went up. Yeah. And then he did a change to right. doing it a little bit every year. Right. And the hypothesis was that if your pressure creeps up, your trabecular meshwork is already decompensating. Your cells are already sick, and yeah. your meshwork's not functioning right. properly. And then you're trying to bring it back again. So you're allowing it to get to a stage of sickness and loss of function that you might be able to head off if you just treat it a little oh, bit every year. Exactly. So Tony Rellini, who's, who's um, the uh, chief investigator for the COAST trial, right. has set up a very elegant analysis where randomizing to low and high pressure right. laser and then randomizing a second time to um, repeated treatment or, right. or as, as required PRN treatment, mm. which I think is really, I think it's gonna be really exciting yeah. When, yeah. it, when it does complete. Right. I do. Stefano Gandolfi. Gandolfi, that's it, thanks. <laughs> All right, so we have we've covered a lot of ground, and thank you, I mean, that, that was phenomenal. I learned I learned a ton. Yeah. Looking forward, other than the Coast study, is there anything else that you're excited about, laser-based or otherwise, about glaucoma or anything in the interior segment space? Well, I think laser-based, we've probably got to talk about direct SLT, there's a Belkin Vision device called the DSLT, and that's firing laser rather than through a, a lens on the eye and a gonioscope through the um, lens and then mirror direct to the trabecular meshwork. It's just going straight through the limbus and an idea dreamt up by Professor Belkin in Israel that you could, if you're generating a little bit of information and that's somehow stimulating the cells and that's somehow the trigger for this, and there's lots of Alvarado's basic science that we haven't covered, which would support a sort of inflammatory cell cytokine, right. cell stimulation hypothesis. 
Maybe you could just do that by firing an argon laser or a, or a frequency doubled YAG wavelength laser straight through the lumbus. And you're going to get some scatter from the sclera. The wavelength's visible, but still some will penetrate enough. And it worked. So he did that just with a standard SLT initially. And then he's incorporated into that some additional steps such that the, the SLT delivery can be done in a circle with automated gaze tracking. And then that's going to be has interesting knock-on consequences for who's able to carry that out and where and may make the idea of annual SLT if the case trial were positive right. a feasible proposition because otherwise we're going to have way too many lasers right. to do. So I think that's, that's interesting. Right. That's in the near future. I think in the far future the idea of repopulating trabecular meshwork cells directly there's a lot of people working on TM cell stem cell and implantation of stem cells to the trabecular meshwork to try and rejuvenate the tissue. I, 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 I'm less excited by taking gene switch, lab-grown stem cells and then injecting them into the eye because I think we may have a mechanism by which we are already targeting the resident stem cells to do the same thing, SLT. I think there may be a more refined version of of stem cell stimulation that I haven't even dreamt of, which is not SLT, that does that, does that step. Yeah. Um, or it may be that that repopulation and injection of stem cells to, to try and get the trabecular meshwork to, to, to rejuvenate could be reserved for those patients in whom we're too late for SLT, the stem cells are already dead, the trabecular meshwork so damaged that we can't deliver that change and that rejuvenation with just laser. And that maybe that's where that science is going to really come to fruition. There's, I think Ernst Ham's working on that, and there's a group in New York working right, on that, right. and, and and I think that's very that, that's potentially very exciting. Yeah, I, I agree that I think that genetic, you know, looking at the altering genes or some sort of genetic therapy is probably the next frontier. You know, I was I was the opinion by by the time they figured it out figure this stuff out, will have mutated to a different species. But, <laughs> but, you know, I think, you know, they're really moving forward on these and identifying these segments of the, of the, <clears throat> within glaucoma, you know, the different DNA changes and effects and different you know, haplotypes, et cetera, that may be involved in, you know, the different severities of the glaucoma. Yeah. And again, I think all this will help us <clears throat> in the future target our therapy again target it yep. to more specific you know approaches we're looking at the genetics of, of, of response to laser in the SLT trial right. we're trying right. to work out exactly what we use as the, as the definition of response but yeah. we have genotype the SLT patients and the UK GTS patients oh, good. Uh, where they had prostaglandins or placebo and now we're trying to tease out some of the signal that might exist working out if we could predict who would respond and who wouldn't right. Whether that's that's probably not important at this stage, where you can give someone a drop of do the laser because they're so safe and just see right. if they work. Right, right. But I think it will become a, a paradigm that defines what we do for more interventional therapies, right. such as more expensive therapies, exactly. right. such as um, gene transfer into trabecular meshwork, which are obviously going to be expensive and potentially risky. But if you can pre-select the ones for whom that's going to work, then that risk may well be worth it because you get such a high response rate. So I think that side of things, the gene targeted, genetics targeted, 
choice of therapy is going to be very exciting. Mm. And I think, you know, I think there's going to be a, a lot changing. There was a Swedish epidemiologist who uh, wrote about our misunderstanding of, the, of, of how bad the world is, because actually it's a lot better place than we really think, because we misunderstand the change that's occurred when, since we left school because we stopped paying attention. Right. And um, he said, change happens much more slowly in the short term than we, ever, than we, than we think it will. It takes a lot longer to change the paradigm. But the amount of change that we see in the long term is much greater than we realize. So if you look at the shift that's happened in 30 years, it's huge. Right. But if we look at how long it took to get SLT out there into the patients, it was way longer than you might have anticipated. Right. So final question, and you may be biased by this, but if you had to look back in your career, what is the most important innovation in your (laughs) careers? Mine's pretty I mean, we did a number of things, but I still think SLT is probably SLT. Important. All right. What, what do you think, Gus? <laughs> I'm going to go way back when, say, the Capsulorexis. Capsulorexis. Oh, wow. Okay. It's a really neat yeah. idea. It was really simple, and it's beautiful. And having been just about long enough in the tooth that when I started cataract surgery, people were still doing extra caps. There were still kind of letter roper capsulotomies. There were still people doing tin can capsulotomies and would occasionally tear out. But getting a capsulorexis with all the strength and flexibility yeah. and the developments that that has right. subsequently permitted. I mean, fake maybe, but actually without capsulorexis. Right, right. So that's my that's my one. That's Perfect. A, I, I agree. That's a, that's good. That's a good point. Thank you. Well, thank you both okay, so great. much for joining me today. This has been awesome. I, I've really enjoyed this live podcast here at the <laughs> Academy, and I, I've learned a ton. So thank you both so much for joining me today. <laughs> I hope there wasn't too much in there. Yeah, there's a lot in there. Thank you there. so much. Thanks very much. A lot of history. Thank you. <laughs> I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content, in particular, Alcon, who is a founding level sponsor of the season one of the History of Eye Care. And that concludes another episode of The History of Eye Care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.